Welcome to the Global Watch Prayer Podcast. Thank you for joining us as we build community in prayer to empower the church from local expressions to global connections. For more information and resources on the Global Watch, visit theglobalwatch.com. We want to welcome you, everybody. This is the Global Watch International Call. It's March 21st, 2022, 6 a.m. Jerusalem time. And this hour is the journey, which is our weekly time of discipleship. Currently, we are going through the book by David Slyker called The Nation's Rage. For this hour, we're going through the final two chapters in the book. And next week at this time, we will have the honor of having David Slyker himself on the journey live to answer questions. That is going to be really fun. And also of note, we mentioned it before, Israel goes into daylight savings time this coming Friday, March 25th. So Jerusalem time is going to shift. So everybody just needs to be aware of that. And so tune in. Susan, do you want to give us a little introduction? And then we'll go into the video. And then what we'll do is we'll have a little we'll have a few comments before we go into a breakout session. This is the last session with the nation's rage. I have just appreciated so much doing this study because I feel like what he has emphasized is really a Jesus centric lens for the end times. And with what all that's even transpiring right now, what have you found that to be helpful? I hope you have <laughs> because we're entering into a suddenly we started this before the war started and now we're all of a sudden things are escalating right and left. And I'm just very thankful that we're getting ourselves established in the end time narrative that it's not based on fear or sensationalism or the secular narrative, but rather it's uh, Jesus centric. And just look across the board at you guys, and I see a lot of steady eddies out there that we're going to stay close to Jesus' heart and hear his heartbeat, even if things escalate. We're not to fear because there's something that God is doing in all of this. I do want to say right up front that this week we have do have an interesting thing happening. I put it out there where Erdogan is going to be fostering peace talks between Zelensky and Putin being the president of Turkey. And that nation is high on our radar list in the terms of the end time narrative. I'm not going to presuppose anything. I don't want to, I don't want to say anything into it, but I want our listening ears open to this week and what transpires there. So with that being said, tonight's session is really more on the general view of the church right now and what God is doing and it's summed up in Malachi 4, 5, and 6 that in, in those days, he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the children to the fathers. I just want to read its context out of his book. It's on, oh, I just lost it. Here we go. It's in the last chapter. I don't know what page it's on. Oh, page 226. Here we go. And it says, the church of the Western world now finds itself in a critical moment. Do we not? <laughs> this key moment of history involves fathers and sons, mothers and daughters, and the connection of three generations of faith. We are on the brink of historic economic, social, moral, and societal changes that have staggering implications for the world as we understand it. Are we not on that precipice tonight? 
we find ourselves with an almost desperate need for spiritual men and women of depth, seasoning, battle-tested perspective and experience, people who can point the church to the things that really matter in the world of shallow options and misplaced cultural optimism. In other words, there's a huge cry for the spiritual mothers and fathers. And we'll see, say more to that, but that's the premise of what the message is tonight. We're going to just, it's about 20 minutes. But the rest of it, we want to engage in conversation and discussion. Did you want anything else, Fred? No, that's fine. Let's go, let's go right into the video. Okay, here we go. Well, hello, everybody. This is it. This is our last time together. This is really almost, it's a little sad and a little fun. I'm so glad to be with you tonight. One last round. We're going to be talking through the final chapters of the book, the set of notes that came today. And of course, as always, your last round of questions and comments and observations from things that have been said on the videos, on the notes, on the book. You, uh, you have one more session with me, and then that will be a wrap. So this is a fun one. So the way that the book is structured, everything so far in the book is built around the big idea. And the big idea, of course, is the idea of the increasing rage of the nations, while at the same time, the zeal of the Lord for revival to bring justice, to bring revival, to break in with his Holy Spirit. But as the Lord breaks in concert with the increasing rage and resistance of the nations, that's a collision that is really quite intense. And so that's the big idea of the book, that there is glory and revival and power and breakthrough and victory in our future. <clears throat> but as the Lord is moving in power amongst the nations of the earth, the rage and resistance of man doesn't go away when revival comes. That's really the summary of the big idea, that the rage and resistance of man to God, when God comes through revival, actually amplifies, it intensifies, and goes to another level. And so, as I've said in the videos, and I'll say it again, we're not preparing in one sense for what man is going to do. We're not preparing. There's a lot of just in the air and a lot of conversation where each side is preparing for what the other side is going to do. And I just believe that we are called to go a different way. We're not, go, we're not preparing for things to get bad because men are evil. Things are bad because men are evil, but things are awesome too. The Lord's moving. So we're not preparing for things to get worse as it relates to what men do. And we're not preparing for men to get more wicked. What we're preparing for, and that's the last section of the book, okay, if these things are true, if this is how things have unfolded in history, if the French Revolution, the Bolshevik Revolution, if these are snapshots of what it looks like for man to cast off with rage what he views as the oppression and the interference of the church with how he wants to live, then if there's, a, if there's a violent end in those two revolutions, and both of those revolutions produce out of the storm of that rage and resistance against the church, against God, both of those revolutions produce their own little mini antichrist figure. And so the totalitarian dictator, the oppressor, 
And so the so when men cast off God and their idea of the oppression that God and his church bring, what's left is, of course, the oppressor, the dictator that's born of man. And it's what men are left with when the dust settles. And so we have some really crazy days ahead, and uh, but we also have glorious days. And so, so the end of the book is an application point. It, okay, the question is, okay, if these things are true, if revival amplifies rage, not just desire for God, because I believe that the reason that the lost are so profoundly cut to the core and conviction and salvation in revival history is because there is a longing for God and revival amplifies that longing and accelerates their yes for God that was in process. They were on the journey. But in the same way, it amplifies and accelerates that no. And so again, the question is, if we're preparing for what God is going to do, what does preparation look like? What should we give ourselves to? And Really, I can boil down the end of the book really simply. It's uh, the way in which I understand, as just years of youth and young adult ministry, the way that I understand the best way to prepare myself is to, Song of Solomon 1, find the little flock and tell them the things that are true about Jesus and tell them the things that are true about his word and tell them and invite them to engage in a life of prayer with urgency to prepare for what the Lord's going to do, to grow together in our alignment with the heart of God and with his value system and with his way of just that we actually foster an unoffendable, unshakable love for Jesus when we disciple it and mentor it and look to impart it in the next generation. And so that that chapter in the book is actually, for me, a, a really critical chapter. It's, it, of course, serves many purposes. I believe Malachi 4.6 is a central promise of God. And I believe as well that Malachi 4.6 is going to be one of the most powerful witnesses of the glory of God on the church in an hour in which 20-year-olds are rejecting 60-year-olds. They're rejecting, and when I say 20-year-olds are rejecting 60-year-olds, they're not necessarily, sometimes they are, they're not necessarily looking the 60-year-old in the eye that they know and saying, I don't want you, I don't need you, I want nothing to do with you. They generalize it. They go, they talk about the system and they talk about the, you know, in other words, the system and the dynamics of the church they're receiving from the 60-year-olds in the way that they see it, the way they frame out their argument, the world, the political system that they're receiving from the 60-year-olds. The 20-year-old is in essence saying, I don't want the world you're handing me. I don't want to step into the church that you're handing me. I don't want to step into the government that you're handing me, the rules that you're handing me. We want to find our own way according to our idea of justice that seems to be far from you. Now, again, I'm speaking in huge generalities. I get that there are a number of you that know fiery, godly, humble, honoring 20-year-olds. So I'm not talking about every 20-year-old. I'm talking about a cultural dynamic fueled by demonic deception. And it's the rejection from the 20-year-olds of the 60-year-olds. And of course, when 20-year-olds reject 60-year-olds in ways that are foolish with language and rhetoric that seems so, not just idealistic, it's beyond idealistic. It seems, I like Stuart's phrase from a few weeks ago, it's dark ideas, dark ideas. 
And so when a 20-year-old has been proselytized and evangelized into dark ideas, whether it be on the far right or the far left, it doesn't matter to me, the, the, when they're proselytizing dark ideas to a 60-year-old with rejection, a 60-year-old can look at the 20-year-old and write them off. We don't need you either. And we're going we're gonna to do this without you. You don't. And so that's, uh, that's in one of the chapters where I talk about the dynamic of we're in it. We're just in an unusual hour where it used to be that a 20-year-old, a 25-year-old, a 30-year-old had to play by the rules. They had to wait their turn. They had to pay their dues. Because why? Because the 40, 50, and 60-year-olds had the resource and the opportunities and the open doors and the permission. And so if the 20-year-old and the 30-year-old wanted to advance in the world that they were choosing to engage in with their occupation, they needed the resource of the 40, 50, 60-year-olds. They didn't necessarily need the wisdom. You would want them to want that, but they would listen to the wisdom as a way of waiting patiently for the resource and the permission and the network and the open doors of opportunity. And so here we are, we live in an hour in which a 20-year-old, a 20, a 30-year-old has unprecedented access to source, opportunity, finance, the, what you can imagine that you can learn on the internet, what you can imagine that you can gain on your own, there's, a, there's a, an ability for a 20 to 30-year-old to not have to pay their dues in the 40, 50, and 60-year-old's system and opportunities. They can make their own way. And so in the most unusual way, this is unusual. This is a historical anomaly, actually. There's no, there isn't a context in history where 20-year-olds and 30-year-olds have fast access to much influence, much resource, and much ability to make their way in the world without their parents, without their leader. They don't need their pastor for theology. They can get that somewhere else. They don't need you know, the ministry school for training. They can get the resource to go plant a church if they want to, and they can learn the systems. The, uh, it's never been more easy in one of the most delicate times in history. It's never been more easy for the 20 to 30-year-old to reject the 50, 60-year-old and their wisdom and their counsel and their leadership and their fathering. Their and so the premise that kind of fuels the last few chapters and my heart in writing those chapters, which is similar to the note, and I'll reference the notes in a moment. But my heart in those last few chapters is basically this. We need true spiritual fathers and true spiritual mothers more than ever before. The, and the reason that I say more than ever before, because again, the, old, the older context, the, <clears throat> excuse me, the way in which things worked 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago, the rules of change and leadership isn't by position. It isn't by natural authority structures that have been built that are bigger than the individual. Leadership more than ever is about influence. It's about, it's not about the title that you hold. It's not about the position you hold in the ministry or the church. It's not about the way in which a leadership structure views you or whether you're A, B, and C. There's a, there's never been a greater need for spiritual fathers and mothers who lead by influence because they've gone somewhere in God. They've gone somewhere in their prayer lives. They've gone somewhere in the Word. And because it's not just that they know the Word and know how life works, 
but there's that spark. There's the way in which beauty has transformed their interior being. And that beauty has made them beautiful in their interior being. And that beauty is a magnet. We need fathers and mothers who have been made beautiful on the inside, washed by the beauty of God, washed by his emotions, washed by his character, his attributes, who he is, the truths of the word. In other words, they don't just know the Bible and they don't just read the Bible. And actually, they don't just live the Bible, but they have engaged with the word in a living and dynamic way in which they've been washed by it. The beauty of who God is has left its imprint on their soul. And that beauty and that encounter with beauty, it transforms our emotions. It transforms our perspective. It's more than a deposit of wisdom. There's an immersion in God that establishes true fathers and mothers in the faith. And what, that's, what that means is that you're more than older and wiser. We need something more than older and wiser. We need men and women of stature without title with a spiritual inheritance and a beauty magnet on the inside that's been cultivated in prayer over time with humility. And so the notes are one way of laying hold of that through the doorway of the Sermon on the Mount, but through this angle. In other words, you're a true father or a true mother in the faith. <clears throat> when you've gone a certain way, Ephesians 5 is the first passage that I look at in the notes, and, and then 1 Corinthians, where Paul begins talking about the way in which the Greeks, the pagans in Corinth are acting like mere men. But now that we have the indwelling spirit, we're not mere men anymore. Therefore, we cannot regard one another in, this, in the faith as mere men. We can't regard one another according to our ideologies, what our eyes see, how we judge people, how we evaluate people. We have to regard one another according to the spirit because Ephesians 5, we are of his bones and of his flesh. We have become something else and our way forward into true fathers and mothers of the faith is to fall in love with the church. What a young person needs to touch is that interior beauty that is bursting with delight at the church in all of its weakness. Beloved, I want to, if there's one thing I leave you with in this course as an application point for how we go forward, if young people touch a father and a mother that they have a prayer life, they have a life in the word, they have wisdom, they have perspective, they have experience, but there's a mild, jaded cynicism, undealt with hurt, undealt with unfulfillment, disappointment, related to the church, a mild complaint, mild self-justification related to our quiet distance and, and setting apart from the church. If we regard the church as mere men and talk about them accordingly, we can't enter into the kind of robust spirituality that young people need us to lay hold of. And I want to take the approach of Philippians 3, that as I'm talking about this, I'm not I have not yet obtained this. I am pressing on to lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. And he laid hold of me to love his church, to be transformed with beauty on the inside, to have an inheritance to give the next generation and a magnet on, a, on my life that causes them to ache for what it is that I've touched. That's where I'm inviting us all as an application point to set ourselves towards. 
when the rest of the world is arguing and the rest of the world is content with a debate, when the rest of the world is playing politics like they play sports and trying to score points, we need fathers and mothers, fathers and mothers who are after something entirely different, that they see the context, they see the urgency, that when they see the news, when they see what the other side is doing, they get concerned. But, but I want to I wanna say our activism is our interior reach and that bursting forth of something on the inside that we have both to give as an inheritance and to feed and to, we might not always be in a position to disciple, but we might be in a position to mentor. We might be in a position to influence for a moment. We might be in, an, in, a, in a position to encourage. It's going to look different with every young person. And it doesn't, you're not a failure if you're not discipling someone. If you prioritize the interior fire and the interior magnet of that life and beauty of God washing our emotions, if you prioritize that, then you're content with However it is, you can make your imprint on a 25-year-old, a 20-year-old, a 30-year-old. You can be content with whatever that is, and it doesn't have to be more than it is because your goal all along was the first commandment and to burn with love for Jesus. And so whoever benefits from that, so be it. But in the strategic urgency side of things, we know this is what the next generation desperately needs. And I'll say one last point, and then I'll pause for a second for questions, more comments. I love what's happening on the chat. I love what folks are saying. One last point. So then if we do this, if we actually go somewhere in the Lord, in our prayer lives, but again, it's not just our prayer lives in the general sense. It's not just that I pray. And it's not even just that I pray the word, though we want to do that. It's that I pray fervently for my church and for the church. And I do it until I fall in love with the church in a way that people's weakness cannot steal. That I fall in love with the church in a way that bad leadership can't steal. That I fall in love with the church. That I see the church through the lens of the heart and the eyes of Jesus. That I see the church through the lens of the possibilities of grace and not what the church has done to me. Too many saints are sidelined because of the narrative of what the church has done to them. And the church has done something to them. They've done something to others. We are Romans 3, weak and broken human beings. We do stuff to one another, but the hour is late and the need for people to transcend that and to lay hold of something bigger than that, that I'm going to fall in love with the church, that I'm going to speak well of her, that I'm going to pray for her, that I'm going to contend for the church with the apostolic prayers of the New Testament until my heart aches for her destiny and sees her possibilities and talks about her with grace and talks about her leaders with joy and talks about her broken with compassion and talks about the people that that wound and come short with mercy. Until I touch that, I'm never going to touch what the hour requires related to darkness, young people, where they're at, how they're walking away. They are longing and waiting for that kind of father and mother in the faith to arise. And when it happens in the midst of young and old, rejecting one another, betraying one another, turning from one another, and and with cynicism and anger and real contempt, there's contempt 
We see it already. There's a dehumanizing of one another in the rhetoric of the day. When that's pointed towards mothers and fathers, sons and daughters, that Malachi calls that a curse. There's a curse on the land when there's contempt and dehumanization of generation to generation, when it breaks down that way. But by the grace of God, again, I believe the folks are going to hear the stirrings of the Spirit and respond. I believe the people are going to lay hold of something on the inside, a love for the church, a love for the bride that can't be stolen or touched by the evil one. And that interior flame of love for Jesus and love for his bride, that interior beauty marked by the beauty of God, it's going to be a beacon of hope and delight for the next generation. And when the next generation, when sons and daughters are drawn to fathers and mothers and fathers and mothers are drawn to sons and daughters to give and to pour out, but for the sons and daughters to be in position to receive, it's as rare for sons and daughters to be in position to receive as it is for a father and mother to have something to give. And so for a son and a daughter in humility, in, in gratitude, in and without entitlement and genuine, genuine spirit of honor, not flattery, and not using the father and the mother to get ahead or to get an opportunity, but to see the father and mother through the eyes of grace and the beauty of God and to see the testimony of Christ that's marked their lives, that kind of young person is going to emerge. It, it, they are. And so the prayer that I pray is, God, let, the young, let that kind of young person, when they arise, let there be an older person that's also arisen at the same time to meet them. That the young person with humility and honor and tenderness and mercy and kindness and gratitude and no entitlement, that there would be on the other side fathers and mothers to meet them and that the fathers and mothers wouldn't be too late and the sons and daughters wouldn't be too early. But at the same time, both groups are arising. They're turned towards one another. They fight for one another. Luke 1, with the spirit of Elijah, they're fighting for one another with the foreigner spirit and the Father's heart. And when that happens, that is going to be a beacon, a witness to the earth. The Lord's, the Lord, that to me is a, is an indicator of revival and breakthrough. The Lord's going to shine his light on that as a testimony and a witness of what he wants to produce in families across the earth, spiritual families, natural families, families yet to be. That's my presentation for this last round.